The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. You know, Disney's um, Lilo and Stitch is a story about family. Um, Stitch is this creation, actually, of a mad scientist from another planet. And at first, he is known only as Experiment 626. And he was actually created with the express purpose of causing chaos and destruction wherever he is sent. And the leader of the plan- this planet looks at this creature, this 626, and she says, this, this, this creature is horrible and has no place in our world. And so she banishes 626 to prison. But Stitch, if you've watched the movie, escapes to Earth, where he is adopted by this little girl named Lilo, who is, who is raised by her older sister named Nani, because their parents have passed away. And Lilo is always getting into trouble. And Nani, her older sister, is so fed up with her that one day she finally says, you are such a pain. Lilo yells back, so then why don't you sell me and buy a rabbit instead? To which Nani replies, at least a rabbit would behave better than you. And Lilo screams back, go ahead, then you'll be happy because it'll be smarter than me too and quieter and you'll like it because it'll be stinky like you. (laughs) And later on, when their tempers finally cool down, Lilo says to Nani, we're a broken family, aren't we? I like you better as a sister than as a mom. And you like me better as a sister than a rabbit, right? And then she bursts into tears. And so these three, Lilo and Nani and Stitch, try to make a family together. But it's really hard because each of them brings so many problems into the family. And Stitch discovers this book about the ugly duckling, and he wants to know what the story is about. And so Lilo tells Stitch, oh, this is a story about a duck that is so sad because it is all alone, and nobody wants him. But then one day, his family finds him, and he is happy because he finally knows where he belongs. And Stitch realizes that he is like that ugly duckling looking for his home, and he captures that sadness in the single word that Stitch says, lost, lost. On another night, Lilo tells Stitch, and she she, she kind of confronts him and says, you know, Stitch, I hear you crying at night. And thinking about her own brokenness, Lilo says to Stitch, I know why you wreck things and push me. Our family's little now, and we don't have many toys, but if you want, you could be part of it. You could be our baby, and we'd raise you to be good. Ohana means family, and family means nobody gets left behind or forgotten. 
This is the need and the hope of every child, isn't it? A place of security and of acceptance, a place called family. And yet the sad truth is that for so many of us, this is not how we experience family. In fact, I think for many of us, some of our greatest insecurities are as a result of our family. I want to show you a picture here. This is my father's hand on the right, and this is my hand on the left. He's over 80 now, and so our hands don't quite look identical anymore. But when I look at my hands, I see my father's hands from my childhood memories, and it kind of freaks me out. The way my hands look now is exactly how I remember staring at my father's hands when I was a child growing up. And it's not just my hands that I think are similar. I find myself taking after him in so many ways. The friends that know me the best, my closest friends, describe me in the same way that I remember hearing my father's friends describe him when I was growing up. A couple of years back, I shared this picture in another sermon comparing my youngest son, Judah, with a picture of my dad when he was in the army deployed to the Vietnam War. And it's really uncanny to me how similar they look. In other words, my father's impact on our family doesn't just end with me, but I even see it going into my children. And Judah not only looks like my dad, but in so many ways his mannerisms remind me of my father. Just the way he holds things and moves things and walks around, I feel like I'm looking at my father so many times. And it's not just the genes that have shaped the person that I've become. So many of the choices that my father has made have had such a profound impact on me. The woman that he chose to marry who had become my mother, his decision to become a doctor, his decision to move our family to America, his decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Russell Moore in the storm-tossed family says, our life stories show us that we are part of a larger story, a story brimming with other characters. No matter how much we want to believe that we have shaped and formed ourselves, that we control our own personality and destiny, we all come from somewhere, and more to the point, from some people. And what I'm saying is that more than we could ever realize, our family shapes the person that we are today. And if you are a parent sitting here today, you are profoundly impacting the person that your children are becoming. And for the message today, my primary focus is going to be on the story of Joseph. And I want to particularly through this story show how God wants to heal the brokenness found in every family through his redeeming work in our lives. And so let's just jump right into it. From the very beginning of the story, it's clear that Joseph's family is really messed up in so many ways. Genesis uh, chapter uh, 37, we're going to start from verse 2 to 4. It says, this is the account of Jacob's family line. 
Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he had made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. And so we're told that Joseph brings a bad report to his father about his other brothers. And that word bad report is often used to describe somebody who is actually telling a lie. In fact, elsewhere in Scripture, that word is translated as slander. Now, we're not really sure if Joseph lied about his brothers, but in the least, it's very likely that he was exaggerating to make his brothers look as bad as possible in his father's eyes. Now, let me ask the kids in this room, is a parent supposed to have a favorite kid? I see little kids drinking like this, right? Raise your hand if you think you're the favorite kid. <laughs> don't, don't, don't do that. No. <laughs> don't, please don't do that. Um, of course not. Parents are not supposed to have favorites, are they? But here is the problem. Jacob had a favorite son, and it was Joseph. And he didn't even try to hide it at all from the other brothers. In fact, he gives them this beautifully decorated robe to wear to basically show, show to all of the other brothers, this is the child that I love the most. And you can imagine how the other brothers must have felt to see Joseph wearing that coat that nobody else got. Sometime later, Joseph tells his brothers of a dream that he and his brothers uh, were all bundling grain in a field together. And then when they had gathered each of their bundles, all of the brothers' bundles bowed down to his bundle. Genesis 37 verse 8 says, His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. And like a spoiled child who knows that he is his father's favorite. Joseph doesn't seem to care how his words are making his brothers feel at all. And he tells them, in fact, I had another dream. And this time you were all stars. And mom and dad were the sun and the moon. And now all of you together were bowing to me, even mom and dad. Now let me say this. We think that Joseph is the hero of this story. But at least in his teenage years, we see how much growing up he has to do. He is a spoiled, proud child who doesn't care about others' feelings. And sometime later, the brothers make a plan to kill Joseph. But the oldest brother, Reuben, steps in and says, let's not kill him. Let's throw him into the cistern, which is just a big pit in the ground used to store water. In Genesis 37, verse 23 to 24, it says, So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. 
The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. And so after they throw Joseph into the pit, they sit down to eat lunch when they see a group of traders heading to Egypt passing by. And so Judah, one of the brothers, makes a plan and says, rather than killing him, let's just sell him as a slave to these traders. And so they sell their own brother as a slave for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph's coat and they dipped it in goat's blood and they told their father that a wild animal had eaten Joseph. And for many days, Jacob cried because he thought Joseph was dead. What a big mess this is. Whose fault is all of this? The problem is that it is so hard to find one person to blame because they were all guilty. It was wrong of Joseph to treat his older brothers like he was better than them. But it was also wrong for his brothers to hate him so much that they sold him to be a slave. So then maybe the fault is with Jacob, the father, because the father should have known better. And he should have known not to show favorites to his children so that all the brothers would end up hating one brother. But here is the problem. Even Jacob was just modeling what he saw in his own family. Because when he was growing up, he had a brother named Esau. And they were like opposites of each other. Esau was strong, like an athlete, and he was a hunter. He was big, and his father loved him best. But we're told that Jacob was quiet and always stayed intense. In other words, he didn't even like to go outside. And his mother, Rebecca, loved him best. And so that is the family that Jacob grew up in, seeing a mother love him and a father love his brother more. We see the same thing in our families as well, don't we? Usually there isn't one bad person who is causing all of the problems in the family. There is plenty of blame to go all around as we hurt one another and not even realize the way that the sins that are in the family are affecting us by the way that we treat each other. And so as you may know the story, Joseph was sold as a slave to this man named Potiphar, who was the captain of the Pharaoh's guard in Egypt. And Joseph would find success there and is becoming a commander of everything in Potiphar's house. But then he is thrown in prison when Potiphar's wife lies and falsely accuses him of assaulting her when he refused her advances. Knowing, notice I'm using language so that the younger kids don't understand quite what's going on here. And Joseph would spend years in prison for a crime that he did not commit. But then one day Joseph interprets a, a dream of Pharaoh that seven, days of abund seven years of abundance will be followed by seven years of famine when there will not be much food. 
And Joseph urges Pharaoh to store up as much food as possible during these years of abundance so that Egypt will be prepared for these seven years of famine when they come. And so in Genesis 41, verse 37 to 40, it says, The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. And so because he saves Egypt, Joseph becomes one of the most powerful men in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. And it is tempting to think that this is a rags-to-riches story of a man who overcame impossible odds to start as a slave and then become one of the most powerful men in the world. But Joseph's rise to power is not the climax of this story. It only sets the stage for the real climax, which is Joseph's reconciliation with his brothers. Because the story of Joseph is ultimately a story about family, about family. It's interesting that more than 20 years have gone by since he was sold as a slave by his brothers. But Joseph had never even once attempted to find his family. He had a lot of money and power, and he could have easily done it. But he never once reached out to them. And the question is why? Well, the name that Joseph gave to his first son helps us to understand why he didn't do it. Joseph named his son Manasseh. Manasseh. And the meaning of that word Manasseh is causing to forget causing to forget. In Genesis 41, 51, it says, Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, it is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. You know, being sold into slavery by his own brothers was so painful to Joseph that he just wanted to leave all of that behind him and move on in his life. And now that he had achieved a name for himself and had his own family, his own children, his own wife, he wanted a fresh start. And he wanted to forget about his past life with his parents and his brothers. And I think so many people who feel hurt by their families are just like Joseph. The easiest thing to do is to walk away and to leave our bad memories in the past. But that is not what God wants for us. He wants to reconcile and heal our families and not just help us to move on and to forget. The famine that Joseph predicted ended up affecting the entire land, which included Israel. And so Jacob sends his sons to Egypt because he hears that there is food there. And in verse 47 of chapter 42 of Genesis, it says, As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. 
But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Now the brothers have no idea that this is Joseph. But Joseph recognizes them immediately. But Joseph acts like he doesn't know who they are. And from that point forward, Joseph is going to do some really weird things that are very difficult to understand. And he ends up speaking very harshly to them. And he accuses them of being spies. And he asks them all of these questions about their family. And then he puts them in prison for three days. And the question is this, why is Joseph doing this? Is it just to get revenge at his brothers because of what they did to him when they were young, when he was young? I don't think so. At a basic level, Joseph is trying to get information from them because he's been separated from his family for so long, but I think something deeper is going on here, and it has to do with this truth. In a broken relationship, all you need is one person for forgiveness, okay? Listen carefully to this. For forgiveness in a broken relationship, all you need is one person. If someone hurts you and they are not willing to acknowledge or admit that they've done anything wrong to hurt you, what I am saying is you can still forgive them. You can still forgive them. But true reconciliation and healing of a broken relationship requires the cooperation of both sides both sides. To heal the relationship, the trust that has been broken has to be rebuilt. And for that trust to be rebuilt, both sides need to show a spirit of genuine repentance and forgiveness. Otherwise, reconciliation cannot happen. And we do see and we will see that Joseph has changed from that spoiled brat that he was when he was 17. Joseph has changed and become a more humble, gracious, loving person. And he so desperately wants to reconcile with his brothers. But before that can happen, Joseph needs to know, have my brothers changed at all? Have they changed at all to make this reconciliation possible. You see, if he immediately told them that he was Joseph, then he would never really know what was truly in their hearts, would he? Because he is the second most powerful man in the world, and they are in a desperate situation, starving to death in Israel. So they will say anything they need to say to Joseph. Oh, our brother that we love, <laughs> we're so sorry that we sold you as a slave. And so Joseph has to figure this out carefully, what's really in his brother's hearts. And so he sets up a series of tests to reveal their hearts. And so he sends them back with food to their father, but he says this, one of you has to stay behind in prison until you bring that youngest boy, Benjamin, to me to prove that you are not spies and that you're telling the truth. And from that beginning, 
we see signs that the brothers have actually changed. Genesis 42, verse 21 to 23. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded for us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. So Joseph acts like he doesn't know how to speak Hebrew. And so they start speaking freely in front of him. And he can understand everything that they're saying because he still remembered his Hebrew. And in Genesis 42, 24, it says, he turned away from them and began to weep. But they came back, then came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. You know, I think Joseph probably never thought that he would see the day when he would witness his brothers expressing any regret for what they did to him all those years ago. And so he is so overcome by emotions that he has to turn away so that they cannot see his tears. But I also think that those were tears of pain because it was stirring up all of the painful, heartbreaking memories of his past. Remember, what Joseph wanted was to forget. And now suddenly God was making him remember all of these things of his painful past. And so Joseph holds on to Simeon and sends the rest of the brothers back home to bring Benjamin. But then he secretly takes the silver that they gave for payment of the food, and he has his servants put them all back in his brother's bags. And when the brothers discover the silver in their bags, they are scared to death. Because by doing this, Joseph has made the test even harder. Now the brothers must return to Egypt with Benjamin in order to rescue their brother Simeon. But they know that they're going to go back to a country where the leader will accuse them of stealing the silver. In other words, Joseph is trying to make it extra hard for the brothers so that the easiest thing to do is to just leave their brother behind and let him stay in prison. And he wants to see, have my brothers changed at all? Well, Jacob refuses to let them take Benjamin and says, I have already lost one of my favorites. (laughs) You're not taking my new favorite with me, with you, to Egypt. And here we find more evidence that the brothers have changed. In verses 8 to 9 of chapter 43, Then Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy along with me, and we will go at once, so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. You know, Judah is the one that came up with the plan to sell Joseph. But all of the years years later, he now pledges his own life for Benjamin and says, if anything happens to your son, I will take the responsibility, and I will take the blame. 
I don't know if it would be accurate, though, at this point to say that the brothers have changed completely. I think that would be overstating the case. There is actually still no evidence that Judah feels any guilt about what he did to Joseph quite yet. Listen to what Ian Duguid says. Perhaps that is something you should be looking for in your strained and shattered relationships. Small steps toward change. Sometimes we demand unrealistic levels of transformation from people and refuse to make any concessions until the other person has changed completely. But change is a process, and we can often recognize and celebrate baby steps in the right direction while still acknowledging that the process has a good deal further to go. Sometimes we ourselves are the ones who need to change. We recognize that we are the ones who have sinned and are sinning against those around us. Yet we do not have the power to transform ourselves. God's work of sanctification in our hearts is often a slow process in which it is appropriate to recognize and celebrate every step in the right direction. And that's what we see in the story of Joseph. Not dramatic, earth-shattering change, but little changes, little hints and evidence that God is at work. And that gives us hope. And I think that's one of the problems we see, particularly in broken families, is there's that kind of stubbornness that says, until I see real change in you, I don't believe anything that you say. I don't really think you're being sincere, and I think you're a liar. And we put that kind of standard on our family members, not recognizing that often the work of God in our lives happens one baby step of confession and self-awareness and surrender at a time. The brothers arrive to Egypt for the second time. And this time, Joseph says to his servants, prepare a banquet for them in my own personal residence, in my house. And the brothers are kind of frightened about that. I think we're in trouble. But before the meal, they present Benjamin to Joseph. And when Joseph sees Benjamin, he is overcome with emotion this time. And he has to run out of the room so that no one can see him crying. And this is what Joseph does as another test. At the banquet, he tells his servants, give Benjamin five times the amount of food as any of the other brothers. So they just pile heaps of food on Benjamin's table. What is Joseph doing here? This is what he is doing. He's doing this. If there is any jealousy for Benjamin, <laughs> I am going to fuel that fire. <laughs> I am going to fuel that fire. And let's see how the brothers react. And then this is what he does as the next part of the test. After the banquet and after a good night's rest, he sends his brothers back home with food again. But he tells his servants, take my own silver cup that I drink out of and put it in Benjamin's bag. And as the brothers are leaving, he sends his servants and says, go and retrieve that silver cup. And so Joseph's servants stop the brothers and say, why did you steal Joseph's cup? 
And this is what the brothers say. Why would we steal his silver cup? We even returned the silver that we found in our bags when we returned home. We would have no reason to take his silver cup. In fact, if anyone has taken that silver cup, let that person die. And the rest of us, you can take as slaves. And so the servants, one by one, go through the bags. And they get to Benjamin's bag. And they find the silver cup. And they say, oh, no. And this is where Judah speaks up in Genesis 44, 33 to 34. Now then, please, let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. And let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. Judah holds true to his pledge and says, take my life, not his. It will break my father's heart, and he will never recover from this loss after losing another son. And this is what it says in Genesis 45. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. Joseph wanted to forget his past, but God wanted to heal his broken family relationships and reconciling him with his family. And that is God's desire for every one of us here today. And my prayer is that the story of Joseph will give you hope for your own family as well. After all the hardship that Joseph had gone through in his life, it's hard to understand how Joseph could have forgiven his brothers. But the story of Joseph ultimately points ahead to the story of Jesus, who forgave us far more than we could understand. Jesus was also sold for a bag of silver. Jesus was also betrayed by those closest to him. And Jesus offered to take our place, just like Judah did with Benjamin. But here is the difference. Judah was spared. Jesus wasn't. 
Jesus died for our sins on the cross so that we might experience eternal life. And that is why through Jesus, we can experience healing and reconciliation in our own families. In other words, the story of Jesus invites us to see ourselves, to identify with the older brothers in the story of Joseph. We are the ones who have committed an unforgivable wrong. We are the ones in need of an unimaginable mercy and forgiveness. And only when we realize how God has forgiven us can we be the ones to confess our sins to our loved ones and to seek and offer forgiveness to our family. Let me say this as I close the message. I said that at the beginning of the message, forgiveness can happen with just one party in a broken relationship. But for true reconciliation, both parties need to participate. And let me say this, you may be in a situation in your family where reconciliation is not possible right now. But let me say this, you can begin with forgiveness, can't you? And the other thing that I want to say is we need to have that same spirit of Joseph that says, In everything that I've been through, everything, I believe God was right there, present, and had a purpose. That is so important to experiencing healing because what that means, when I really believe that, is that I stop constantly looking back as a victim with resentment and can actually start looking at the present and at the future with hope. It means when I truly believe that God is at work, I can actually really pray for my family and believe that in those prayers, God is working in my family. And when I can believe that, then I can recognize even the baby steps that are happening in my family. I don't get the miracle. I don't get the immediate radical transformation maybe, but I know God is at work in my family. And I'm seeing baby steps. And I'm seeing little changes in myself, in my father, in my mother, in my children. When we truly understand the gospel, we can quit blaming others. And we have the courage and the freedom to acknowledge our own sin. And we can repent before God. The prophet Malachi said that one of the redeeming works of God when Jesus comes is that he is going to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. It's powerful, isn't it? One of the great healing works of the gospel is healing for families. Let me just close with this. Um, when my children have kind of reached adulthood, which probably about half of them have now, um, and they graduated from college, um, I actually would take them out to a breakfast, you know? So, so far I've done this with Joy and Noel. 
But over that meeting with them, I say to them, um, I want to give you an opportunity to share with me honestly what it meant for you to grow up in our house. And if there are any pains or wounds that you bear because of me, I want to hear them and I want you to be able to share them. And here's the thing is, I think that I'm the greatest dad in the world, okay? I think I made no mistakes. But I found out that I have made some mistakes in my years of parenting. And uh, some of those things that they said were hard to hear. And I wanted immediately to defend myself. Hold on a minute. (laughs) That's unfair. You don't know the other side of the story. But I just bit my tongue and shut my mouth and just listened. Just listened. And I felt like that was one of the great gifts that I could give to my children. It's to say, you know, I want to acknowledge that pain that you experienced growing up under my leadership in this family. And by God's grace, I want to do better. I want to see healing in this house. Can I ask you as parents, has the gospel freed you to have the courage to have those kind of conversations with your children? To experience both the extending of forgiveness and the receiving of forgiveness in the family to see healing in Jesus' name. Let's pray. We're going to come to the Lord's table in just a minute. And I want to say that uh, in the counseling that I do here at ICC, I realize what a long shadow our family casts over us. Some of you grown adults, very successful in your careers and have built for yourselves a wonderful family and yet the shadow of the family that you grew up in still seems to chase you at times. And I also want to say this. I'm also counseling some of you at the church that are also recognizing that in as much as you may have grievances against your own parents and the way that you were raised, some of you are old enough and honest enough to discover you're inflicting your own brokenness on your children. And you're realizing you're not exactly doing a whole lot better job than your own parents did. And you're realizing how hard family is, how hard it is to raise children. And maybe you're worried, saying, um, I feel like I've made a mess of things. I feel like I've scarred my kids in some ways, and I don't know how to repair that. And what I hope you see in the story of Joseph is the story of hope, the story of a God that works in families and says, for my redemptive plan to move forward, we have to deal with this. It's not just about moving on and forgetting. It's about reconciling and healing, and that is so much tougher. Ask Joseph, who had to run out of the room so many times because he was just bursting into tears. It was so emotionally difficult for him to deal with his brothers. But this is the hope of the gospel. This is the hope that Christ gives us on the cross. 
Let me pray for us, and then we'll come to the Lord's table. Um, God, I pray that there will be great healing in Jesus' name. When we think that you bore our sin on the cross, that we were the ones deserving of that condemnation and that judgment. You came and you died for us. And in that great news of the gospel, may you use each one of us as agents of healing in our own families. May you give us hope that even though we can look back to such a long history, even generationally, of failures and sins and mistakes, your grace is greater. Your love for us is greater. How you pursue us, how you want to heal us, how you want to restore these broken relationships in our life. God, I pray that what is happening in each of our families models for us, images for us the gospel, that we can see your love for us by the love that we share with one another. So we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. On the night that Christ was betrayed, he gathered his disciples around an upper room. And he gave to them this bread and said, this bread represents my body broken for you. And then he had them take of the cup and said, this cup represents my blood shed for you. So whenever you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, do it in remembrance of me. As we think about all of the brokenness in our world, all of the brokenness in our families, the pain that we've experienced, we come to this table as an act of faith that Christ alone heals that brokenness. So in that faith, let's go ahead and take the bread first and then take of the cup and then just quietly meditate and then Juno will lead us in a time of response and worship.